there's a lot of similarities in business and life. And we might look at the academic or the business world and say, well, you don't have experience doing X, Y, and Z. But I mean, Jim, you got two daughters. You were never a father before your first daughter, and yet there you go. So, you know, what stops you from doing that? And where's your qualification for that? I'm Jim Huffman, and this is If I Was Starting Today, a collection of conversations about half-baked startup ideas, growth tactics, and stories from founders, including my own journey as a business owner. All of the content is centered around one question. What would you do if you were starting today? All right. Today on the podcast, I have somebody who I'm fortunate enough to see on a monthly basis in a very intimate setting. And uh, last month, he came in and did a presentation because this guy has not one but two companies that he has acquired and is doing some really impressive things. But he presented it and he kind of blew my mind with this idea of acquisition entrepreneurship when you don't have to put up any money and then you get to own a company. It was very brilliant. But He's going to be sharing that with us today, but Shrikash, welcome to the podcast. Happy to be here. Thanks, Jim. Yeah, man. And so, yeah, we're in a group here in Seattle where we talk about founder and entrepreneurship things. But um, Shrikash, before we we get into it, do you mind introducing yourself? Sure. Yeah. So I'm Shrikash Majithia. I am the founder and principal of Dando Capital Management, and I am currently the CEO of Dr. Snip the vasectomy clinic, which is a Dando portfolio company. Nice. And so for people that don't know, what is a vasectomy? And in the most PG (laughs) version, could you give it to us? Yeah, absolutely. The PG version is outside of abstinence, a vasectomy is the most permanent and effective form of birth control and family planning. We tend to market it as a way for families to enjoy their life and their quality time and intimacy once they know they don't want any more kids. Wow, you have rehearsed that before. That's very well done. <laughs> and so, the, yeah, this is a procedure a gentleman could do after they have kids and they have a crazy household like myself and realize they don't want any more. Sounds like a very simple procedure that would cost me maybe four figures, but usually insurance can pay for it. So it's a no-brainer, right? That's right. Yeah, yeah. It's about, We're covered with in contract with about 90% of insurance companies out there. And... You know, to that very point, it's maybe a thousand bucks, twelve hundred bucks, even if you're out of pocket. But for a lifetime of risk-free or worry-free enjoyment, is a, a pretty low price to pay. <laughs> yes, compare that to having to pay for daycare and private school forever. It's a great ROI, and you have a mini monopoly that maybe we don't need to talk about, so that people don't get the idea. Well, you have such a huge barrier to entry with like your talent and procedure, but. You literally have a monopoly in the Pacific or in, in the Washington area, now the Pacific Northwest. And so we'll get into it. But before you did this, um, talk about what you did that led to acquiring this company that had been around. Talk to, about your life pre Dr. Snip. Sure. So I'll, I'll try and distill it into a couple of milestone moments that kind of led me to where I am today. The first one started, and I'm going to go back here a little bit, but the first one started back in the 11th grade. So so Jim, I was like a B plus student, but I had A's in gym and drama. And I had C's in math and science. And so I was a little bit bummed on that. And I remember showing my report card to a friend and, and one of my best friends at the time. And she's like, she said seven words that changed my life. She said, don't worry, not everyone's meant for university. And you got to appreciate growing up in an Indian household, 
it's not a matter of if you're going to university, it's which university and doctor, lawyer, accountant, engineer, pick one. And so that lit a fire under me. And, you know, I just turned it up and, and hit that next level when it came to my studies, second semester, grade 11. And then up with a 98 average, that got the attention of the school and my guidance counselor. They put me up for an internship program with a local bank that was hiring visual minorities at the time. This is, you know, 90s, 2000s, where there was still an issue with visual minorities. And so I got hired by the Bank of Montreal as a greeter and then eventually like a, a cashier and a teller. And I stayed with them for seven years, just worked my way through college while working with them full time. And when I went and decided to become an accountant and I did my accounting degree, I interviewed at PwC and PwC liked that seven years of loyalty to BMO. So they hired me as an intern, as a summer student. And then I joined their firm full time, spent five years with them, got my experience in consulting and M&A. And then that loyalty and that experience was attractive to Imperial, which is a now billion dollar private equity fund in Toronto. And when I spent time at Imperial, I learned more about investing. And at the end of my tenure there, I kind of had that second kind of big moment where I thought to myself, I'm like, if 50 years from now, I take my kid on my knee, like my grandkid, and he's like, Grandpa Shrikesh, what did you do for a living? If my answer is, kiddo, I did deals on Wall Street for a living, I wasn't going to feel satisfied. Like I wanted to be an entrepreneur. I wanted to build something meaningful. So I built my own fund with the blessings of my then bosses and started looking for deals and focused more on healthcare because that's where I think there's a lot of opportunity to really make a meaningful difference. And I'm a guy, so men's health made sense. And I'm in my mid to late 30s. And vasectomy is something my buddies talk about all the time. And just one thing led to another, but it, it kind of got me this opportunity to say, hey, let's see if we can make a difference in this world by providing a procedure that is underserved while still also creating a good business of it. What a cool story. I'm such a sucker for seeing these inflection points in people's careers. And a lot of times it's not the carrot that motivates people, it's the stick. And that first example is someone almost challenging your ego a little bit. Could you even go to university? And you also didn't mention you went to, was it the London School of Economics where you're working to get your PhD? London Business School. Yeah. Business I was there school, yeah. for a bit of time as well. Yeah. Yeah. And so it's so interesting how that inflection point was triggered by a simple person that kind of said something that put salt in the wound that was true. But then the second one was being able to look at the long game and see, hey, actually, I want to do something that. I'm going to be proud of to tell my kids about, but then actually acting on it. So as we go down that path, you say private equity. And before we get into, you know, how that led to what you did with the acquisition, could you just define that for people? What is private equity? Because there's a lot of misunderstandings around what that means. Sure. And before I do all caveat, I'm not going to be the, the end all be all answer kind of thing, because I think private equity is a loaded term that can mean different to different people. And I might not be the only person that has the definition, but one of them essentially, very layman, it's essentially private capital. It's people that put money not into public markets, but into a private investment vehicle or a private fund, or even if it's an individual, you know, that's where angel investing comes from. But essentially, it's money that's not in the public domain and public stocks that is used to invest in businesses or infrastructure or anything else. So PE funds can be uh, company focused the way Dando is and the way Imperial is, or they can be infrastructure focused. You can buy a toll bridge in the middle of Brazil and charge a bait for, for bridges or trucks to go back and forth and make your money back on that. But essentially, it's, it's a way to create value over time to the investor. 
or the investor group behind it. And my understanding also, like when I think of venture capital, people raise a fund, invest in startups to get a minority ownership, and they're swinging for the fences. Whereas in private equity, you're acquiring something, usually you're owning the majority of it. And it's more of, is this a great cash flowing business? Does this company still have the growth potential, but maybe not the scale of a VC firm? Is, is that fairly accurate or what did I miss? I, I would say so, but I think, you know, the term can be used in a lot of different ways. And a lot of funds can kind of find niches to define their own kind of unique pitch. So, so the best example I can give you, if we think about venture cap versus private equity, you can also get private equity firms that will, will go lower downstream. So maybe it's not a full majority position, or maybe it's not necessarily cash flowing, but it has the opportunity to, so they can be maybe in between a venture cap fund and a private equity firm on a full out buyout kind of thing. So, so really it, it, it the beauty of private equity is it's a, a analogous term that can suit the person or the group of people behind it, as opposed to any one single definition that you have to fit into. That's super helpful. So you've worked your way up in finance and business. You're on the buy side, private equity, which a lot of people would stop there. But you're like, nope, not enough. I want my own fund. I want to acquire my own companies and do this myself. You raise money. Um, you don't have a track record of operating businesses. How do you go from working a private equity firm to all of a sudden you raise your own fund? How did you pull that off? And could you even talk yeah. about the, the range of how much you raised? Yeah, absolutely. Happily to. So, so a couple of things. The, the track record thing is always fun because I think that there's a lot of similarities in business and life. And we might look at the academic or the business world and say, well, you don't have experience doing X, Y, and Z. But I mean, Jim, you got two daughters. You were never a father before your first daughter. And yet there you go. So, you know, what stops you from doing that? And where's your qualification for that kind of thing? Or, you know, at some point we buy a house and where's our qualification for buying a house? There's a lot of similarity between buying a house and buying a company because that diligence you got to do and understand all that matters. So for me, track record was one thing that I was acutely aware of. And so when I went fundraising, part of the, the fundraising was to make sure I addressed that. So trying to figure out how to put this all full circle now. When I decided to, to give up a PhD and become an entrepreneur, part of it was a genuine desire and a passion for what investing in business operations is. I wanted to be in the weeds. I wanted to, to be on that ground floor, you know, proverbially in a C-class building with bad carpets and just trying to make something of myself. To, to me, that was exciting. And I'm fortunate that my background in accounting as a CPA and in private equity may not give me the full spectrum, but it gave me at least one good pillar to stand on. And so when I went fundraising and I talked to investors, I was fortunate that, that I was oversubscribed. I had more guys that wanted to put money into the fund than I had allocation space for. And so part of my process of diligence was understanding who I was getting in the bed with and what value they were going to be able to add to me. And so to your point, I don't have an operating experience, but when I went out to the investors, I said, look, I don't need your help on due diligence. I don't need your help on building a financial model. I don't need your help on deal screening. I need help to make sure that once we operate, you know, I've got the support or the, the cover two over the top as a safety in football to, to make sure I don't misstep. And the group of people I selected to work with were wholly on board and supported with that. So it made sure that I had a little bit of coverage behind me versus trying to do everything on my own. That's awesome. And being very aware of your strengths and your weaknesses. So if somebody's listening to this, they're like, I want to raise a fund. I want to acquire companies, but I'm not sure cash. I don't have the background. I don't have a network with 
very wealthy people or organizations, what advice would you give to somebody that's looking to go raise their own fund? Lawrence Summers, who's the former federal chairman of the Fed Reserve, once said, fortune favors the brave. So just go do it. And I don't mean to be flippant in that, but there's never the right time to do something. There's never the perfect background. And if you know the story of long-term capital management, these were the smartest guys in the room that imploded like 18 billion or something, whatever the actual number was, but they, they were supposed to be the tried, trusted, proven guys. If we think about you know, whether it's America or elsewhere, like the Bill Gateses, the Bezoses, the Musks, they didn't necessarily have a background that was perfectly suited, but you just figure it out. So you know, a bit more granular in the advice, I would say take stock of your, your skill set, know what you've done, know what you are capable of doing. As long as you haven't been kind of wafting through life, whatever you've spent your time doing, you'll have a functional area of expertise in. And as long as you believe you can extrapolate that into something meaningful or you can translate that into a lateral function or skill, I think you have the ability to to do it if you really want to. No, that's awesome. And whenever you're raising money, well, so can you speak to the scale of how much you raise? Is there like a range you, you could give? Yeah, so so I'll give you I'll give you some, some details, but also the, the traditional search fund metrics. Typically, your raise from an individual is somewhere between uh, three fifty to seven hundred thousand dollars. And so what that does is that buys you a roughly a two year runway to uh, pay yourself a salary, to cover your rent, to get your diligence done, and to put the fund structure together so that you can then be useful and for the next two years go out and find and screen businesses. There's a lot of businesses for sale out there. There's no shortage of businesses up for sale. Something like 40% of the US and Canadian economies are made up of small and medium-sized businesses. 70% of them typically don't have a succession plan. So if you're looking to buy a business, there are businesses for sale. The question is, can you grow it? Can you manage it? Can you scale it up? And can you not lose money doing it? So if you can answer those questions reasonably well, you can put a fund together. For me, I raised about a half a million dollars on my initial uprace, and that covered my costs for two years. And then when I found Dr. Snip, I called the rest of the capital to say, hey, we found this opportunity, we're going to invest in it. And from there, decided to pull the trigger. That's amazing. And so you said something called a search fund, which is you're raising money where people will fund you for two years to find a company. And if you find it and can acquire it, they would you would then call on that second tranche of capital to then go buy it. And when you're buying a company like this, how much of it are you paying for just with those funds? Are you doing any debt or are you doing any like seller side financing, you know, the seller actually would own part of it or would help with the financing. And just so people know that are thinking about this, like how they should think about the mechanics of acquiring a company. Yeah, happy to, to, to expand on that. So so first off, let's just deep, uh, unpack the term search fund. Search fund is, is a fancy word for, for a fundless sponsor, which in turn is a fancy term for a pledge fund, which in turn is just a way of saying you have no money, but you'll find it later and you want to buy a business, right? <laughs> so it, it is like fake until you make it, but is it really faking it if you know you're going to be successful? Maybe not. That's for the listener to decide. So in the context of deal structure, all of the above or none of the above can apply. You can have seller financing or not. You can have debt taken on by a bank or not. It all depends on what you want to do as the principal of the fund and what your investors are comfortable taking on. You know, The challenge slash upside of, of having a search fund back or a fundless sponsor is that you don't have committed capital. You haven't gone out ahead of time and raised 
$100 million or $10 million and saying, no matter what, I'm going to manage this money the way I want to. You guys can't say anything. In my world, my investors had a big say in that structure. So when I decided to, to buy Dr. Snip, one of the things we did was we actually didn't take any debt from a bank, none whatsoever. And I got asked by half my investor group saying, what are you doing? Like you're leveraging or you're not leveraging, which means that it means your returns are going to be lower on equity, right? Because obviously if you have debt on the balance sheet, you need less equity to pull the deal. And the opportunity that Dr. Snip was a real chance to grow a clinic that is underserved, a procedure that is underserved in the United States. So a couple of quick facts for you. For every vasectomy in the United States, there's two tubal ligations done. And tubal ligation is more invasive, more risky, more painful, more costly, right? And nine out of 10 or 10 out of 10 doctors will tell you, if you can help it, get a vasectomy over tubal ligation as a family unit. So for every vasectomy, there's two tubal ligations. In the United Kingdom, so London, and in Canada, for every single vasectomy, there's half a tubal ligation done. So by a factor of four, we are underserving the US market. And this isn't like some... This isn't some economics thing. This is healthcare, right? This is what's best for people and less risk, less death and so forth. People actually die from tubal ligations, like seven per 100,000 because it's general anesthesia. So when I went to the investor group, I said, guys, this isn't just a short-term returns play. We can build a really good and and essentially the leading clinic for vasectomy. If we're going to do that, let's not have capital be the reason why we fail, right? My, My analogy to them was if an earthquake hits Northeast Seattle, the day after we close and we have to shut down operations for six months, you know, I don't want to have to worry about debt covenants and therefore lose every opportunity before we can get off the ground. And sure enough, it wasn't an earthquake. It was a pandemic and it wasn't six months. It was two years and we treaded water for two years. And thankfully, we didn't have to worry about debt covenants in the meantime. Man, you are basically a psychic. That is really smart. And that worked out quite well for you. So I want to take a step back because as we go down this path, you have raised a fund. You've been able to get people to give you a certain amount so you can pay yourself and go find this company. Can you walk us through? You're, you're sitting at home. You've got this money. You have people that will commit. What's your process for even thinking about, okay, what's the ideal company to acquire? And how do you even begin to scour the internet to find the ideal company? Yeah, good question. So a lot of that work would have been done not the, the actual boot work or the grunt work of finding the companies, but understanding what you're going to do, game planning, and what metrics you have to hit are all done ahead of time, right? So so even before I can knock on an investor's door, the first question I've got to answer myself is, how am I going to do this? And so in the investment world, there's something called a PPM or a private placement memorandum, which is equal parts marketing document and equal parts legal document that you present to your investors to say, hey, here's what the thesis is of the fund. Here is what we are going to do. And if you take it seriously, if you do it well, that PPM is a intensive and laborious exercise, but it's kind of like having to write your own autobiography, right? In, in the same way that you have to know yourself, you have to actually put that thought to paper. And so for me, I was a, I was a solo investor slash entrepreneur. I didn't have a track record behind me and I'm Canadian. So I'm going to US investors who never maybe heard of my alma mater. And so I put a lot of effort in that PPM. My thesis was it's my first introduction to a group of people I have yet to meet and I want them to know who I am. So why not put some effort into it and lead with the best foot forward? And because of that, I put a lot of time and effort into thinking about types of businesses I like, types of industries I like, and at least 
putting a track record down on paper of what I'm going to try and follow. And I'll level with you. It didn't happen. Like I, I had three theses of investment industries that I liked in my appendix and none of them came to fruition. I ended up in healthcare and doing vasectomies instead. But I guess the way that, that Warren Buffett likens reading to compounding interest, right? For every page you read, you're not going to get any immediate return, but over time those pages add up and you've got this like uh, plethora of information to draw on. I look at the investment process as the same way is that you're not going to know from day one, but every step you take will help you going forward and the next step and the next step after that. Yeah. And even though your initial thesis and the company acquired were different, it's like even knowing the investment you made, you could go from the filter. Of, Here's the ideal thing that I want. This company doesn't fit to that perfectly, but man, it has these things that makes the risk worth the reward and the way you could balance it out. But could you talk about some of those criteria in the initial you know, an assessment on like what you wanted in a company because you, you kind of showed it to us last month as far yeah. as some of the criteria. Like, if someone's trying to acquire a company, what are some criteria they should be filtering it through? Sure. So, so again, well, I'll caveat this as take it with a grain of salt because this is tailored based on what I know and what I'm comfortable in. Obviously, in investing, it's not one size fits all, it's more like jazz music where everyone can listen to something and, and hear something different. But for me, I wanted something more service or software-based. Services are scalable in a way that makes sense to me. Software is the same way. Manufacturing, for example, is the alternative that can be scalable. But I don't have a manufacturing background. And there's a lot more, I think, like, like heavy analytics and engineering that goes into like fine-tuning widget manufacturing and so forth. So I didn't want to focus there. So I wanted things that were more service-oriented. I wanted things that were lower capital expenditure. A lower capex typically means that you've got a longer runway. If you have to spend a lot more money, then it means that you know if you have a downturn or a rough period, you might have less money to invest in growth. And so I didn't want to have to worry about that. Similarly, I wanted a high scalability factor. So whether it's a process or a software, figure it out, understand how it works, and then replicate that everywhere else versus having to do more consulting type work, which would then be creating a new wheel every time. And then I was looking for you know, specifically in entrepreneurship through acquisition is I want something that's already proven. So something unique in that industry, right? A value proposition or a moat as Berkshire Hathaway and Buffett talk about. So things that can't just be replicated. And in Dr. Snip, we have our own instruments. We have our own tools. We have our own processes, workflows, and technique that, you know, can't be replicated even if someone wanted to. And so there was something unique and compelling in that capacity there. That was a big reason why we did this deal. And then I was looking for someone that had strong presence or establishment in the marketplace. So not just an idea, but kind of proof of concept as well. The last thing I'll touch on very quickly is the idea of revenue models or, or recurring revenue. So in the SaaS world and in software, recurring revenue is a very common trait. That's not, you know, people should know about that and can, can Google that. But a wonderful distinction can be made between recurring revenue and reoccurring revenue. So let's be clear, vasectomy is a one-time thing. That's not going to happen over and over again. But the same model can be applied in different cities and in a community. So I would liken a vasectomy provider to an orthopedic surgeon, right, who might be the best in class in this local area. And as a result, it has a good brand and a good established business that would be a good opportunity to invest in going forward. So I was looking for things like that. Awesome, man. That's essentially the cheat sheet for it. No, very cool. So, you know, as you go from the finance side to now you're an entrepreneur, you're a CEO, you're doing ops, you've kind of worn every hat. Like, 
What's your biggest takeaway? What have you learned, like making that transition? And even what advice would you give to other people starting out going into that CEO role? Know yourself. Socrates said it once, know thyself. And I think there's a lot of value to that. Any business, and you and I, by the way, we could riff on this for hours over tequila because you know, we're both entrepreneurs and you wear different hats and you learn to realize what you're good at and what you like to do versus what you're not great at or what you might not like to do. And I think that's okay. I think I would rather double down, triple down on things that I like doing or things that I'm good at that I enjoy doing versus trying to force myself to do things that I don't thoroughly enjoy. Because I do think it's a marathon, not a sprint. So you got to really enjoy day to day. You got to make sure you're carving out time for yourself. You know, business is, is, is heavy lifting, like to build something from scratch or to buy something and go in is heavy lifting. But long term, it can't be at the detriment of your enjoyment of life. Like it should still be fun. Like this is the epitome of a first world problem that we're talking about, right? How do you grow a business? Like we're fortunate enough to be in a world that we can do this or in a part of the world that we can do this. And so for me, I think it's a matter of, staying focused, but still keeping it light and and not taking it too seriously because otherwise you'll burn out. Yeah, bur- burnout could be very real, but it's almost like it's not an option when you're a CEO or founder sometimes. You still have to show up regardless of your mood or, or what's going down. But like, yeah, I mean, you're super motivated and you're extremely well read. You've, been, you've dropped like six quotes I need to jot down. Like what <laughs> like books or frameworks or people have influenced your approach because you've gone from Warren Buffett to Socrates because I'm a big fan. Like I have these little quotes sprinkled around my office of things to remind myself. What are things you come back to drive how you lead and operate? Yeah, that's a great question. So a couple of things I'll touch on. One is, I think for me, I'll be abundantly clear here just for those that, that are listening. I think I found entrepreneurship by luck and happenstance and just like like living life because i wasn't trying to be an entrepreneur i, I had different hats i'd worn i was a cpa i was a consultant i've done m and i was in private equity but i've never been the smartest guy in a room i'm okay with that i just i like learning and i got no fear so get knocked down time, seven times get up eight kind of thing and that i learned over time is actually perfectly suited for entrepreneurship there's never a perfect approach to, to growing a business. You're going to take one step forward, take two steps back, take three steps forward, and get knocked back down to zero kind of thing. So as long as you know how to get up or you like getting up and doing it again, you're going to be successful in entrepreneurship. So, so I'm a masochist. Like, I'm not the, the guy who's the perfect cookie cutter. This isn't Tyrese Beckford. I'm terrible at some of the things I do, but I'm willing to learn and I'm willing to keep coming back and, and doing more of that. And I think that to me is, is part of, my quest and my search for meaning and my search for, you know, what I want to do in life. So for me, you know, one of the, the big pillars I'm, I'm kind of throwing back and forth right now, actually with my uncle, who's a, a small business owner in his own right, he loved cars and over time found a way into spirituality. And so think like autobiography of a yogi or even just whatever we define, whoever defines spirituality. But Jim, there's a wonderful kind of intersection between entrepreneurship and spirituality. There's big questions in both, right? The decisions we have to make as CEOs are heavy. They affect livelihoods. They affect people. They affect our brand, our image. The questions themselves may differ, but the weight of those questions, I think, are akin to the types of things we try and answer in a spiritual sense of who we are, what our purpose is. And and the beauty part is they they cross-pollinate. I think there's a wonderful correlation between spirituality and entrepreneurship. 
So to me, it's a muscle memory thing. Learning how to think through big questions is something that allows me to get the most out of what I do day to day. And then it goes back to that compounding interest thing, right? The more questions you see, the more you wait, the better you are at it. And so you end up becoming a better entrepreneur. And I'd like to think hopefully a better person as a result of it. But jury's still out on that. Yeah, that's a really good call out. And I like the idea of compound interest because if you're playing the long game, it's almost an unfair advantage, right? Because you're looking at a longer time horizon rather than quick results. And you said something around being a masochist and like getting knocked down and getting back up. I totally agree because I even think about it from business, but also like with my two kids, I don't want them to always like think they're perfect and get everything right. I'm like literally trying to simulate failure and then overcoming it with like small little wins, even if it's like spilling something and then cleaning it up. (laughs) But I worry if you don't have resilience or grit, you're not going to make it. Because the cool thing about business is this isn't, you know, basketball where we need to shoot 40% from the three point line and be consistent with business. You kind of need just one to work. Right. And then once you stand up a business that works, it's about building these machines of sales and operations and finance or whatever and and get that set up. But it's really just like shots on goal. It's get enough reps, be okay with messing up and iterating and and, and pivoting. And and I agree because I don't know about you, but I it took me a while to get into it because I was afraid of putting myself out there and failing and looking stupid and all those things. But then it's guess what? Nobody cares, you know, and it's, no one cares really about you. They do, but they do, they're worried about themselves. So just go for it. At least that, that's what I tell myself. <laughs> I, I completely agree. I'll, I'll make two kind of like addendums to that. One, Ryan Holiday has a book called The Obstacle is the Way, and you kind of touched on it. I really think that the hardest things that we do in life are the things that kind of forge who we are or the hardest obstacles we encounter kind of help us identify ourselves or, or figure out how to become the best version of ourselves because there's no other way but up, right? When you get knocked down, you got to get up or you can just stay down and that's fine if that's your MO, but if anyone wants to be an entrepreneur, you can't stay down, right? This is a competitive marketplace, whether we like it or not. You know, Even if you carve out a niche, someone's going to try and take it and that's fine. That kind of forces you to want to be a better version of who you are today. If you embrace that, then life is good. And by the way, the, you know, that was Kobe and, you know, rest in peace, but also whether you like him or not as a person, no one can question his work ethic, right? This is the guy that got up at four in the morning and run three a day. So when the rest of the world's running two, and to your point on compounding, he talks about the time. He goes, if you've been doing, you know, three workouts a day or three sessions a day for 10 years, even if some guy this next off season decides to double down, there's no way he's going to catch up with you. And this was a guy who grew up in Italy and made it to what, whatever top X number that you want to call about, but certainly one who created a carved out niche for himself in a very competitive sport and game. Yeah, no, that's really well said. And one thing I've noticed, like you're super efficient, you're doing a lot, you've had to wear a lot of hats and what you're doing. And like me and myself, I'm rereading two books right now, because I'm seeing that the company can only scale as well as I can kind of scale myself. It's like what got me here won't get me to that next level. So I'm rereading Atomic Habits, so I can get the right systems. And then I'm rereading the effective executive. So I know what habits to build. Cause I'm like, okay, if I reread these two, I'll, I'll be a super a superhero. But talk to me about what's your routine on how you manage 
like investors, the company, like you're hiring like crazy right now. Give some advice or tips on how you're managing your day or your systems or your mental capacity. Yeah, it's a great question. And, you know, I think we all try and do it as best as we can and it's never perfect. My mental capacity, I can talk a bit more about because I'm acutely aware that this is a marathon, not a sprint. So every day I stop working, I know I could go for an hour or two hours more, but over time, that is going to be detrimental to myself and therefore the company. So we've talked a bit about sports and we'll say in that analogy, you know, if it's a season or if it's a full game, you don't try and go hard for all 82 minutes or all 48 minutes or all 82 games. You got to pick your spots. So uh, in basketball, they always talk about like, the game within the game, which is the last two minutes of every quarter. And that's when you really tighten up and you lock down and you get a bit more aggressive, but also focus. You don't take fouls and so forth. So I pick my spots, quarter ends, or when we're opening a new location, you know, I'll run myself a bit more rampant and just trying to get that hurdle done because there's a finite goal to that. But the rest of the time, I'm trying to keep myself balanced and focused on what matters the most. So the biggest routine that, that I got from one of my best friends was to plan the week and plan the month. Know where you're going to spend your time because you know that things are going to come, especially as entrepreneurs. There's always something that happens. But you've got to focus and prioritize the things that need to get done. So whether that's hiring or legals or new location or marketing, dedicate that time to it. Block it off and know that's going to get done. And then figure out the rest kind of an oscillating factor. Because on any given day, there'll be 10 things that need my attention. Are all 10 of them immediate? No. Are all 10 of them important? No. So focus on the ones that have to get addressed in the rest of the time that you've made while still knocking off the big two or three things that need to get done. That's good. Kind of the Eisenhower metrics, like the urgent versus important. And you hit on two things where it's, you know, playing the long game, know when you need to like blitz scale or go all in and work crazy hours, but it's not sustainable to to do it all the time. And so pick and choose that. And yeah, I totally agree with planning the week and planning the month. If not, I'll just find myself going back and forth from Slack and email, like looking for someone to tell me what to do, which is not healthy. But um, what, there's one question I always like to ask is, you know, what's the nicest thing anyone's done for you in your professional career? What's the nicest thing anyone's done for me in my professional career? I think for me, when I launched Dando, I, I took a flyer on myself. I, I, I kind of I knew I could do anything I put my mind to, but I hadn't done this before. And as a result, there was a question of if I could do it and and you know how successful I would be. So I started making kind of warm calls to investors, potential investors, not even guys that were committed yet, but just guys that I knew that might have an interest or or that maybe they don't, but guys worth talking to. And I remember one of the first phone calls I made, let's see a 30 minute phone call with an investor and ended up being like like 45 minutes to 50. And it was, you know, he had other calls to make, but he's like, yo, I'm gonna cancel this one. Hang on, I'm gonna cancel this one. And at the end of it, you know, the initial conversation started with, hey, look, we're maxed out of capacity. We don't have any room for new investors, but happy to chat with you because you seem like a nice guy. And after 50 minutes, he was like, hey, look, you might be one of the guys we make an exception for, you know, touch base when you're in San Francisco and, and let us know when you're going to put your fund together. We'd love to participate. And that was like the second call I'd had with any possible investor. So to get that feedback early on was a nice kind of, okay, you're not crazy. You're not stupid. There's maybe room for you to play in this market. So let's go. Let's give it a shot. And so I did. And I got fundraised and I built a fund. And 
two years later, I actually lost a deal in like the 11th hour. The sellers bought at the last minute and said, hey, we like you, but we want 15% more on the purchase price. Otherwise, we can't do this deal. And I talked to my investors that, guys, first and foremost, my job is to be a fiduciary director to, to allocate and to steer your funds. And in good faith, I can't recommend this deal at this price. And that's a great personal detriment to me. I just spent two years looking for a business. I had a salary lined up. I had a great business I was going to run. You know, I can make an argument naively or arrogantly to say it's worth 15% more because I then consider myself taken care of and I couldn't do it. And so I made four full calls. I had 20 calls to make and I made the first four and all four guys said, we get it. This wasn't a failure. Do you want to re-raise? We'd support you again. And that was a really nice moment where I found out that by doing right by others, they'll do right by you. And I always knew that, but it's one thing to hear it. It's one thing to believe it conceptually. It's a whole different thing to actually live it and be told that you just burned through a half a million dollars and people are willing to back you again. And that's what happened. And I'm able to talk to you today because they were willing to believe in me. That's awesome. And because you're playing the long game, like you won't have the right company, you care about the relationship with the investors. That's a good one, man. Well, if, if people want to know more about you or about Dr. Snip, where should we point them? Yeah, appreciate that. DrSnip.com, D-R-S-N-I-P.com. If anyone's thinking about a vasectomy on the West Coast and eventually on the East Coast, you know, give us a look. Even if you're not even sure you want to come to us, but we've built a website trying to be educational, trying to be a thought leader because there's a lot of misinformation and, and even lack of information in this space. And so they can check that out. And me personally, I'm not a uh, I'm not a social media guy, but LinkedIn's always the best place to find me. Just on LinkedIn. Yeah, I will say Dr. Snip might be the best brand name possible for your industry. So um, I feel like there should be some merch in the very near future. I know that uh, when <laughs> clients walk out, they get a special piece of merch, but uh, they're going to have to get a procedure to figure out what that is. That's exactly it. Yeah, we'll keep that on the download for now. That's right. Well, Shakras, this is awesome, man. Thank you. Jim, pleasure. Talk to you soon. Today's episode is brought to you by no one. Yep, we have zero sponsors. I haven't reached out to any companies, nor would I expect a reputable brand to give me money. But I'll give a few plugs. First, I send a weekly newsletter each Thursday featuring five articles or tools that have helped me. You can sign up for these weekly updates at jimwhuffman.com. Second, for anyone running a startup, if you need help growing your business, check out Growth Hit. Growth Hit serves as your external growth team. After working with over 100 startups and generating a quarter billion in sales for clients, Growth Hit has perfected a growth process that's hell-bent on driving ROI through rapid experiments. Plus, you'll get to work with yours truly. So if you want to work with a team that's worked with startups that have been funded by Andreessen Horowitz or featured on Shark Tank, then check out growthhit.com. And finally, I wrote a book called The Growth Marketer's Playbook that takes everything I've learned as a growth mentor for venture-backed startups, and I've distilled it down to 140 pages. So instead of hiring a growth team, save yourself some money, get the book, and you can just do it yourself. I hope you enjoyed this episode, and I'd love to hear feedback. I'm on Twitter at Jim W. Huffman.